Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show, we're going to be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Karen May on the programme. Karen is the Executive Director of Abilities Development, a Wembley-based organisation that offers a range of practical and enjoyable activities to young people with disabilities. Karen, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you having me on this show. It's a real pleasure having you with us today. Um, The reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's generation of business and organisational leaders are facing probably one of the greatest challenges of our time. I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how it's been trying to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic in your organisation over the last few months and how it's affected you. Okay, so it, it has had a lot of different emotional um, journeys we have been through. Um, there have been a lot of positives um, alongside the negatives. So as a, a provider of um, services to young people with disabilities in the social care arena, we have been affected um, based on what we can offer to some of our um, clients that we serve. We provide different services, so we have been able to continue working with our young people who we support in their, in their homes um, and offering a bit of respite support to our families. But our major... Um, downside has been supporting our young people who we offered um, daycare to. So these are the young people who would travel into us from their their family homes and then go back to their family homes. So that program we have had to cease, um, and it has had a great knocking effect on um, our staff, our clients, our families. So it's been a learning curve. But it's also given us a lot of opportunities at looking at how we can become innovative um, and keep the service going. So it's been a real challenge, but also quite an opportunity for us to forward think and become very innovative um, in how we work. And I can imagine, um, sorry to interrupt there, Karen, that the um, the knock-on effects um, that you mentioned there on um, both, of course, the people you work with and also staff alike um, have had an impact on mental health as well. And that's also incredibly important in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own mental health and that of those around you. And those issues yes. have really been brought back into the limelight by this pandemic situation, haven't they? Um, yes. Um, very much so. Um, and it's, looking at the mental health, it's for each cohort um, of, of people, it's, it's different, but it's the same. So it's looking at how um, we're able to um, be in the situation we're in, but having a bit of hope and um, looking forward to how we can get out of it. So at the moment in our field for the day services, We've been a little bit stuck. Um, so unlike schools and colleges um, who kind of have very clear guidelines as to how they can continue to support their um, clients, we are a bit stuck because it's, this has, there are no clear guidelines. 
So as a leader, um, I've had to be looking at how I can keep that hope going for our families. So it's continuously speaking to them um, and um, giving them some alternatives as to how we can work things through. And currently, um, we are actually trialing a different model of day service, um, which we actually started on Monday. And it has been very, very, very successful. So um, the families we were working with, I, we can actually see the difference in um, their mental health and the clients as well. Um, they're much happier. Uh, everything, they're, they're seeming to um, be more engaged and actually are engaging at a different level um, than they did pre-COVID. So they, our focus right now is to see how we can then continue to support our families and our young people with learning disabilities to be able to function within the pandemic, but looking forward to helping them to grow even more while this is happening into the phasing and, and probably changing as we go along. Um, the staff, on the other hand, it's been a bit more difficult because we have had to furlough quite a few of our staff members. So um, we've kind of been engaging, but also giving them an opportunity to actually deal with how it's affecting them um, in their own family lives, but also in terms of coming back to work. And that's something we're on the cusp of looking at, how we're going to get staff back into the service. Um, and because it's going to be a totally different model, it's going to be a huge challenge um, to get people to understand how their mental health and well-being will impact the clients that they're going to be working with as well. Mm. And of course, you mentioned as well that in your leadership role, you took it upon yourself to be a beacon of real hope and inspiration just to keep sort of the communication channels open with people, keep them reassured during this time. But when yeah. you are the person doing that, the one sort of running the show at the top of an organisation such as you are, when you need to find some inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to look to for it? Um, my first source of inspiration is God. Um, I am... Really led by my faith, and that has been my pivot. So, my first inspiration is God and the Word. Um, I also have a very close uh, mentor who works with me, um, who is very um, encouraging and motivating. So, I do bounce off and, and just feed into and be, I'm, I'm able to run and, and let things off and she's quite supportive as my mentor. Um, and I also draw a lot of inspiration from um, just, I, I, I do a lot of reading, but leaders who have had to negotiate and navigate difficult circumstances um, just in any arena of life. Um, so I, I go back in history to see how people have dealt with stuff. And um, I also do a lot of, um, training. So I, I, I'm actually doing a leadership training course where at the end of every week I, I do a huddle where I get to literally just sit um, and have music on and literally process what's happened across my week, um, what went well, what did it go well, and the learning points. So I've, I've tried to use different media 
to be able to um, sustain my own mental health, but also giving myself space to feel, to respond, to react, and then to think forward. So that's been how I've managed. And of course, um, you're constantly learning and evolving um, as a leader, as you mentioned there. You take it upon yourself yeah. to go on to training courses. We're never a finished article. There's always more that we can develop and learn, particularly yeah. through experience. And you yeah. mentioned as well that COVID-19 has been a significant learning curve for you. Um, so despite the fact that it has been a very, very difficult and sensitive time for many, are there some positives that you can take out of this experience? Yes, there are many positives. I've I've grown as a person. Um, I've learned how to look at situations with a broader view, really wide view, and um, but to also think about not just what I do, but how others do it, and and be able to again make informed decisions based on um, what I have learned from other people. Um, it's also challenged me to step out of my comfort zone um, and the ideas I've had mulling over for years and months. I've actually been challenged to actually put them in, in practice and see how it works. Um, I've grown closer as well to my staff team and looking at, you know, again, what their hopes, their visions are for themselves but also the job that we're in because it's, it's a difficult job um but i can see that there are lots of um things that we can do to be better to be more excellent at what we do to be able to support people and be more effective in how we support them and not not just keep looking at their disabilities as who they are but to really think again outside of the box about that their lives are parallel to our lives and we can then make more impact in how we serve them. So even just the trials we're doing this week has been so positive. It has spurred us along to think, okay, what will we do next week that will be better? So it's been very encouraging, I think, across the board. Um, also, I've had the opportunity of starting to work with the local authority that we um, supply the services to and that's been positive so we've kind of I've been able to create better relationships and start looking at again how I can be a a positive influence in the field I'm in to ensure that the people we're serving are getting best of what they should be getting at that point. Of course, I think what the pandemic situation has certainly done is accelerated a lot of innovations and changes that perhaps would have come into place in the uh, the next decade or so. Yeah. And it's really yeah. positive to hear that over the course of the next year, you are going to be focusing on how that service that you're providing can expand to become more effective, because it is important yeah. that these services continue to be provided. Um, so yeah. just before we do um, wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, Karen, um, I'm interested to understand over the course of the next 12 months, particularly as we grapple with this new normal way of living and working that we're going to have to get used to um what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at abilities development over that period as hopefully we shrug off the shackles of the uh, the pandemic and really look to the future okay what we're hoping to achieve we would love to be um one of the leading edge providers in the country um we're hoping to be able to um 
be the pioneers in looking at how services are actually designed and modeled for young people with disabilities um, and the extent of what we offer being um, increased. So looking at the different, the different models that we can put in place, practicing them, you know, coming up with um, outcomes and then looking at how we can filter that to, to other providers, local authorities, even to the government um, in how things um, actually look and feel for people with disabilities. And it, it's changing the perspective, the perception, the rhetoric, the dialogue that is actually out there about people with disabilities and the limitations. So we would love, I'm really hoping abilities would be pivotal in um, how people view people with disabilities and then the services that they um, are offered and that are developed for them. So that's our hope and our vision. And let's certainly hope that we see that fulfilled over the course of the uh, the next year or so. And Karen, yeah. I think just given how fantastic it's been having you join us um, to share your views today, it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how things are getting on in that sense. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. That would be wonderful. I've really enjoyed having you join us on the uh, the show today, Karen. And Thank you, most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. I will. And thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I was speaking everyone today to Karen May, Executive Director of Abilities Development. And for those who are tuning in and listening today, do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up, of course, on the show today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords um, and also a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. Um, He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, and he enjoyed quite that fruitful career despite being blind from birth. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to be speaking with Lord Blunkett. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a 
politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people 
who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with mm. you you can you can sponsor reports and this is true of business planning of course as well and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack what happens if there's an energy shut down um, these kind of things you, you can look at but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack. Uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your 
thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. 
and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with 
ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, 
um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.